When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ha 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 ha! It is me, Joseph Stalin, and my power gets stronger every day when someone doesn't rate and review a bro history podcast. Soon, I will be able to resurrect myself in the heart of America and have a new communist revolution. Soon, all Americans will have to take unconscious bias testing, and ones who fail will go to my gulags in Canada. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, my friend? How are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. Um, I guess to kick this off, we should probably address the trip tomorrow. We should have recorded this episode a day later because yeah. <laughs> today is Thursday, July 14th. It's about 10 p.m. And uh, tomorrow... Joe Biden will be arriving in Saudi Arabia. If he hasn't arrived already, it's probably it's about four in the morning there, five in the morning in Saudi. So um, the anticipated trip is going to start, and we've been talking about that. Danny, on a scale of, um, you know, Trump's visit to Riyadh right after he won uh, his election to uh, George Bush having a sandal thrown in his face, what do you think his reception is going to be? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I'm going to lean towards the, uh, the sandal in the face, though there's no guarantee that he's going to be able to dodge it. I mean, he could barely stand on a bike. Oh, right? no. So. <laughs> oh no, I think that would break him. Yeah. <laughs> he would yeah, shatter. He might end up going to war well, with he's durable for the end of this trip. <laughs> hey, by, there's some level of dur- durability with Biden. He did take that fall off his bike. Yeah. Like for a sure. champ. Yeah. So, I mean, if, you know. if I fell off my bike like that, I'd have a sick bruise on my arm and shit, you know? He seemed to be okay. Yeah. Everyone was like, oh, no. Was- <laughs> so he, I mean, he was able to, you know, not break in half. So maybe he's a little bit more durable than, than we think. But I, what, what I think, the reception is going to be pretty much like lukewarming, under the radar type of thing. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be some big extravaganza like it yeah. was uh, with like the ball of energy <laughs> that God knows what the that glowing really globe. was. Yeah. Yeah. The, the ball of energy. Um, with with CC and um, and King Salman, which was probably contained like the souls of like dead people who were <laughs> beheaded in Saudi Arabia. It's some something crazy. Um, some ancient ancient god or deities lives in that globe. <laughs> I don't think he'll get a reception like that, but I don't think he'll get a nasty one either because it's a diplomatic trip and the Saudis aren't crazy they're not gonna be like well they are crazy they're just not stupid (laughs) they're not dumb they're not irrational so they're going to um 
you know, they'll ha- it'll be kind of like a boring diplomatic meeting. That's my anticipation. But we already know what's going to happen in that meeting. It's already the, the uh, reports have already came out. Saudi Arabia is allowing um, flights from uh, Israel to Saudi Arabia. So it's going to be a lot of that type of talk, like normalization of uh, further normalization between relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Mm-hmm. But I guess the real question now in the Middle East, and we won't focus too much on it, is what's what's the overall policy going to be towards Iran? Because uh, Niftali Bennett the other day was talking about, like, you know, Israel has the right to, uh, you know, bomb Iran at this point. So, if, if, the Lord, the Lord can only save us if if there's a war, if there's a war um, in the Strait of Hormuz, especially, or if like the Iranians get into a position where they can strut that, like shut down the Strait of Hormuz. Um, man, that would just cause like an energy crisis that would kill millions of people in the world. But enough about that. We're going to talk about a different. A different, um, a different thing. A different spicy so, topic. <laughs> yeah, so a spicy topic, and it's been on my mind for for a while. And I'm honestly trying to kind of formulate my my views on this. Uh, we were talking before the shows, and you said you're trying to formulate your views. So I think this is a good opportunity to talk about um, McCarthyism and McCarthyism as you know the the um, you know as a synonym for witch hunting at this point and then joe mccarthy and the actual uh congressional hearings and you know the the history behind that and communism in the united states because i think it's an interesting topic that that most people don't really correctly uh identify like most people don't the mccarthy error is such a um i'm trying to think of the best word for this I think it's shrouded in a lot of misinformation. Um, generally speaking, I think it's there. There are a few very interesting, very noteworthy points that people get wrong. In particular, you know, because McCarthyism was a witch hunt, and you know, the the question becomes like, whose fault is the witch hunt, right? And I think what people will find pretty interesting and and pretty weird is that it it wasn't. It didn't start from Joe McCarthy. And I think that's the first place that people start getting it wrong. Um, and there's a lot of misunderstanding uh, about this period. Nevertheless, it, it is a very important period. And it's an important thing to talk about uh, and, and also to relate to current and contemporary events because, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. And it feels like we're constantly throwing around McCarthyism nowadays. And I think it might be kind of interesting to talk about the history of McCarthyism and what that was all about so that we get a better understanding of like how it applies now, if it applies at all. Is that a better way to say it? (laughs) And and the reason why this is an interesting topic to me, because it touches on a lot of things. So first and foremost, it just, you know, the basic um, kind of, uh, do you have the right to belong to a political party type argument? And then there's also the question of national security. There is the question of, um, there's a lot of moving parts in here. Like 
Um, This is the era where where basically the United States created its empire, you know, in the 1950s. So you see like schisms in the conservative Republican Party around this time period. Um, You see, you know, the Communist Party at this point is actually like basically dead and non-existent. It's completely marginalized by by the 1950s. So there's all these weird political changes that are going on. Um, So it's just an interesting place to really it's an interesting era to examine and when i hear the word mccarthyism or neo-mccarthyism now ironically it comes more from the american right at least from what i hear maybe you know someone's experience may be different but when i hear mccarthyism it's usually someone on the right who is uh, it's usually in the context of institutions rooting out conservatives or trump loyalists or Republicans. That's when I. That, that's usually the context of where I hear McCarthyism now, um, or when Democrats start claiming that everyone's a Russian agent. So you know, for example, you know, we're going on about six years of people being accused of Russian being agents of the Kremlin. You know, starting with the Trump administration and, and the Russia Gate scandal, to now, uh, you know, people who are just slightly critical of U.S. policy in Ukraine are being I mean, we're labeled as agents of the Kremlin sometimes by you know people who don't like our takes or you know who disagree with our with our uh, you know with our opinions so it's just it's a very hostile political environment right now and you know a common liberal democrat talking point i've heard is that Republicans are the pro-Putin party. And I pulled up some articles just to just to support kind of my general claim from, from very mainstream outlets. So from The Guardian, Putinism is breeding in the heart of the Republican Party. Make no mistake, Putin's authoritarianism, neo-fascism, has rooted itself in America. The Cold War has already come home. So that's from The Guardian, a, a, British tab, mm-hmm. a British newspaper. From the Financial Times, another British newspaper. Seems like the Brits are the ones who are making this accusation a lot. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should point it. Um, Pro-Putin <laughs> Republicans break ranks by heaping praise on Kremlin, on the Kremlin. Um, New York Times, pro-Putin Republicans. Like, just given that, the, that they're pro-Putin Republicans. And then from the New York Times... The GOP's Putin wing. Donald Trump turned Vladimir Putin to a popular figure among a significant segment of Republican voters. As a candidate president and ex-president, Trump has repeatedly praised Putin, calling him strong, savvy, and genius. Trump has also echoed Putin's ideology by harshly criticizing NATO. Taking their cue from Trump, some Republican voters began to view Putin more favorably. And then um, we've got Think Progress. Um, here's a hit piece on Thomas Massey. Here's how Thomas Massey became the most Kremlin-friendly member of the House. So, I mean, these are just... I did a quick Google search just to find some. Like, I, I literally just typed in Russia, Republican, Putin. And these are the articles that popped up. I'm sure there's a lot more claims. I've heard claims from, like, Adam Schiff and, and um, you know, Democrats in, in the House who, who've made some pretty outrageous claims and and i'll just be clear right now it's not just like i'm not coming at this from a partisan angle at all like you know defending 
Republicans or anything like that, because because it's not just Republicans and conservatives who are getting in. It's it's also um, a lot of like leftist right. uh, or mean, principled how, how realists. Often do we hear, how often do we hear, you know, the right lobbying these, you know, uh, frankly demagogic claims of, you know, people being socialist or Marxist, right? Uh, which is yeah. almost directly and tangentially related to McCarthyism. Like that's the, at least on this, you know, um, on the liberal democratic side, you know, they're well, they're talking about like fascism and authoritarianism. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's happening kind of on both sides. Uh, all, all of this is literally just quite literally demagoguery. And I had to look it up just to just to like make sure I'm using the word correctly because. Sometimes we, we get stuff wrong, but, you know, demagoguery is just political activity or practices that seek, you know, general support or consensus by appealing to the desires and the prejudices of ordinary people rather than by using rational arguments. And that's what this is for both of these arguments. Yeah. Well, well, I definitely agree with, with the commun- like the browbeating um, about communism now because— mm-hmm. Right now, you know, I've said this before plenty of times on this show that the Communist Party, it's non-existent in the United States. The the, right. the, the left wing, like the, the the democratic socialist, like European left wing is almost completely marginalized and non-existent in the United States. Um, it, it's been almost completely quashed. And that process actually took place in the 40s and 50s after mm-hmm. the World War II. You know, the right. leftist movements were pretty rooted out because prior to World War II, or, you know, actually, I should say prior to the Cold War, there, there actually were a lot more labor leftist movements in the United States. Uh, but those were those were definitely quelled. But they were different than what they are now. Like they were more focused on labor rights, uh, you know, now left wing culture in America has, has taken more of uh it's more concentrated it seems to be on social issues and things like that so there's there's differences but um i guess the point i was making that i agree with you on is that yeah i i think uh conservative pundits they often misuse the word uh, communism and uh they use it just to smear like they call nancy pelosi and hillary clinton like left wing radical leftist which is just <laughs> which know, is just funny a joke <laughs> Which is just like they're not radical leftists at all. Like there's nothing leftist about them. Like, did you hear what Nancy Pelosi said about trading stocks on the how how um, Congress people have the right to the free market to, to right. trade stocks? I mean, mm-hmm. that doesn't sound like very leftist to me. <laughs> now, um, it, and I just want to be clear to go back to like this claim that all Republicans are are. Um, you know, agents of Putin. It, it's not just them being smeared. It's also leftists like, like um, you know, the the people who come to mind are like Aaron Aaron Mate, the journalist, mm-hmm. uh, the, the left wing journalist who did a lot of coverage on Russia Gate. He's he's constantly smeared um, as like a pro, as being funded by the Assad government and being funded by Putin. So he, this guy must be really rich. But I mean, it's just <laughs> a smear. He's just a journalist. Um, then Noam Chomsky gets it too, and Noam Chomsky is. You know, he's he's a he's a legitimate leftist. Yeah, that one's so m- it, most shocking to me because it's like I I couldn't place Noam Chomsky as a as a Putin apologist or pro Putin in any sense yeah. of the word. Yeah, and and Noam Chomsky's take is just like, man, we really need to end this war. It's horrible. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. ah, yeah. 
this guy is an agent. So it's the the rhetoric here is has been pretty crazy. John Mearsheimer gets gets this a lot, and John Mearsheimer is a realist, um, you know, founder of the realist. He's not the founder of realism, but you know, he's probably the most influential thinker in international realism in the world right now. He's the dean of University of Chicago. Um, you know, we talk about him quite a bit, and you know, he's labeled as a as a Putin a Putin. Kremlin agent. So it's just like anyone. It, there's such an intense, really, social media campaign, and that's where this this leads to, where anyone who is not completely on board to U.S. for U.S. policy positions is, is is kind of smeared as an agent for for the enemy, and and um, this is just really cascaded into um, kind of a toxic environment uh, since 2016 when it first started with with the RussiaGate scandal. Now. Um, what's crazy to me, the people who are pro-Putin in this country or pro-Russia in this country, like literally, it's so marginal. Yeah. The people who are, and I'm I'm not talking about like people who may even have like kind of minor empathy or sympathy towards Russia. I'm talking about people who are like Russian nationalist types. Mm-hmm. Like the type of people who would maybe like, hey, if a if a FSB agent came to him and said, hey, spy on this institution for us, would probably take money and do that. Right. Um, I think that the amount of people who would do that is so marginal in the U.S. that it's. I mean, these are these are people who are really kind of um, they're you you can find their their fringe Twitter accounts and their fringe Telegram accounts. Right. That's the amount of uh, power that people who are who are pro Putin have in the United States. Dark corners and of the internet only, right? The dark the dark corners of the internet. That's where you are going to find people who have like like real Russophiles, you know, mm-hmm. like like people who just like love Russian culture and who are Russian nationalist. I mean, there's a there's millions of Russian uh, immigrants in the United States, but you know, it, it's um. I mean, even Russians who I've talked to, you know, they're suddenly Ukrainian now. <laughs> like, well, I'm actually Ukrainian. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I was Ukrainian the entire time. I, we're just Russians. We're from Odessa, but we just said we were Russian because it was easier for people to understand. And now that everyone hates Russians, we're Ukrainian. So and that's, that's uh, at least that's my, what my barber said. Now, <laughs> um, the, the funny thing about this whole kind of witch hunt thing though is that especially when i find it when when it's claimed against the republicans as being uh russian agents is that their policies even more like a lot of them are more hawkish on this issue which is which is funny because it's a it's a marginal side of the gop that's even voting against these aid packages like it's not a large amount. We're talking about a handful of more kind of libertarianish uh, America firster types who are against like foreign aid to really you know who are generally just against foreign foreign aid, and it's not under any type of like oh well, it, it's not against the, the opposition in the Republican Republican Party has like nothing to do with like NATO expansion or um, like. Russian interest. It's all about just like, oh, we don't like giving aid. You know, we need to worry about our home instead of there. It, there's like no sympathies 
that have been expressed toward or empathy that has been expressed uh, towards towards the Russian position. So um, in a lot of cases, like some of the most outspoken and, and frankly, craziest uh, hawks are are on the right. And all you need to do is just listen to Sean Hannity for two minutes. And, and I actually wouldn't recommend that because you might shoot yourself. But if you listen to Sean Hannity for 10 seconds, you know, he opens up the show basically saying, oh, well, Joe Biden is not supporting our Ukrainian brothers hard enough. So that's why we're losing. And, you know, he makes suggestions on his radio show that has millions of uh, viewers or millions of listeners uh, about, you know, bombing Russian uh, equipment and then. You know, blaming it on China or something. So there's really, really hawk. The majority of the right is is uh, it's not pro Russia at all. If anything, they're more. There's more remnants of the right who were hard, hardcore Cold War warriors who right, are like just equate everything Russia with the Soviet Union. So it's mm-hmm. like, oh, commies again. Ugh, fucking commies. Ugh, fight the commies again. So. I don't know. I just think it's completely off base and we're living in a crazy world. So um, my proposal is that if anyone ever calls you pro-Putin, you call them tail gunner Joe in response. Yeah. And then tail gun- call him tail gunner Joe because uh, tail gunner Joe is was the nickname of Joe McCarthy. Um, he some- was uh, the reason the reason why he was called tail gunner Joe is that allegedly you know, he misrepresented some of his um, his accolades in the mil- in the, as a, as a tail gunner, and I think he was in the Air Force. Right. It's it, so it, he he that? actually. I think that was actually confirmed that he did exaggerate his um, his war record, but he he was, you know, uh, in, in the military, and he he did. He was an officer, and apparently he was a tail gunner. But the extent to which well, he was a tail gunner was was really the the question of it. But since he held such a high position, nobody ever thought to like call him out on his bullshit. So I think I think that is confirmed at this point. He didn't go on well, as yeah, many well, sorties tail- as he said he did. But he's all, McCarthy, as we'll find out in this episode, is also super loose with like numbers and facts. He just kind of shoots from the hip, and you know, yeah, he's a he's a political opportunist, and, and right. I think that's what what comes out very clear when you when you look at him but yeah the tail gunner story is that he it, the tail gunner is an insult obviously like oh look tail gunner joe right um it'd be like so calling that's, uh elizabeth that's my warren like you know uh chief pocahontas. elizabeth warren or something oh, pocahontas. yeah yeah there you go didn't want to say it <laughs> so yeah um, but yeah, I mean, Joe McCarthy was the guy who accused everyone who didn't support the the most hardcore narr- narrative on on uh, communist infiltration in, in the U.S. as uh, working for the Kremlin. And the thing about that, though, and, and this is where this is going to probably take a turn and, and become more controversial, this show, is that um, the, the big difference back then in the era of Joe McCarthy and now is that there actually was some truth to that. There, there were Soviet moles who were embedded in the government during World War II and you know after World War II, and there had been policies taken by the Truman administration to root them out because they were starting to get embarrassed that their government had been so so infiltrated by the Soviet Union when the policy was changing from you know war with you know uh, being allies with the Soviet Union to 
to uh, being adversarial, essentially enemies with them. So mm-hmm. um, there, there actually there, there was truth to that. But as we get into that, you know, if the the whole um, you know sub subcommittee to investigate this was a complete shit show. Right now, to uh, pull this back, so for, from the end of World War II to the 1950s. And um, this is just kind of like a highlight to, for anyone who's not as familiar. There was a very big fear of communist subversion. And this wasn't actually the first time that there was a Red Scare. So after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, there were a series of these major strikes by, by labor movements, even bombings. Now, there was a bombing. There was bombings and uh, I believe... Washington, Wall Street, uh, Philadelphia, I think maybe Boston as well. There was three bombings. So I think two people died. Uh, there were there was a lot of immigrants from uh, Eastern Europe and Southern Europe who um, were involved in like these more kind of radical left wing labor movements, and the government cracked down on these groups. These were known as the Palmer raids. And, you know, they led to the deportation and, and um, the, the arrest and deport, deportation of um, I think thousands of these, of these uh, foreign-born radicals. So in the 1920s, when the political environment in the U.S. started to settle down, communism became less of a concern. And eventually... Um, communism actually makes, and I'm saying communism in the U.S., it makes a comeback in American politics during the Great Depression. Um, just to give you kind of like a brief summary, the Communist Party of the U.S. Uh, was founded in 1919. Um, they started out as being adversarial to both Democrats and Republicans, but eventually um, the Communist Party started to support FDR, um, at the very least in you know kind of a lesser of two evils type of support, if anything. Well, if, you know, you the know, New Deal was like pretty... The New Deal was pretty socialist, so. <laughs> yeah, but they they supported they supported FDR. Now, you can say the what what makes this this era so interesting is because you know there's different political origin stories come from here. Um, the Republican Party, as it is now, like the conservative Republican Party. This is where their origin is, is in the opposition to FDR and the opposition to the, the New Deal. Um, the old right, so there, there's the old right, and the old right's kind of a controversial uh, claim. Some people say there was really no such thing as an old right. These were all just classical liberals. Other people you know, kind of identify the old right as, its own, as their own separate movement because these guys never actually can call themselves the old right or anything like that. This is a claim that was, this is a title that was given to them mm-hmm. after the fact, but it's where the old right is, is where a lot of libertarians actually trace their Genesis to their, their origins. And they were, they were classical liberals who opposed FDR, uh, mainly his domestic policies. But as it got closer to world war two, they opposed them on that front as well. They, they opposed entrance into world war two, um, they eventually are are moved after the bomb after Pearl Harbor. These these guys uh, eventually begin supporting the war, but then they end up being against like you know further um, aggression 
foreign foreign interventions after after World War II. So these were guys the big the big figures in this movement were uh, Garrett Garrett, John T. Flynn, H. Uh, L. Mencken. Uh, there there was a you know a whole school of these guys, but they weren't kind of like operating in like this one unit or anything. Like they weren't like an organized political movement. They were they were fellow travelers, but they were just writers who you know would be published in various magazines who were very opposed to the New Deal. So um, they were anti-communist, uh, free market types, and um, and um, you know against against foreign intervention. And these this school, the old right, they're they're rooted out of the Republican Party in the 1950s. Um, mainly, they were rooted out by the the new right, which is led by by William Buckley and the in the Cold War, the Cold War warriors. So these were um, the the new right was like people who are more so from like elite institutions from the East Coast. You know, they went to Yale and Harvard. They were lawyers at like major Wall Street firms. Um, that's what the Republican primary in between um, Robert Taft and Eisenhower is. It's a battle between the old right and the new right and then the Eisenhower uh, administration who's mainly backed by Rockefeller ends up taking the Republican Party in the direction of the new right, which is more like more of what it is today. And that tradition kind of dies out. Um, but what doesn't die out is... So this is where it gets a little confusing. Um, to pull this back, the right wing in American politics, they identified the New Deal, as you said, a socialist policy. Yeah. It was a very socialist policy. It is. And mm-hmm. they often accuse FDR of having communist sympathies. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now, um, after the collapse of the uh, wartime alliance between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, um, anti-communist ideas were more mainstream. And this stimulated the, you know, the second Red Scare. So in 1946, Republicans took control of both chambers of the House. And one of the big things that they were campaigning on was purging communist out of the federal or purging, um, yeah, purging communist uh, out of the federal government. And this is what ultimately sets up the stage for Joe McCarthy's uh, you know, legislative offensive against domestic communism. So how, how, did, how did all these like, investigations start? Like, what, what, was the, what was the catalyst for all this? Well, you got to pull this back to the end of the war. Um, in 1945, there was a, a, a courier for a Soviet intelligence network they went to the FBI, or she went to the FBI and named a dozens of, um, of government officials who were spies. And during World War II, there was an intelligence program called the Venona Project that was uh, decrypting Soviet intelligence cables. So the Venona Project revealed that there was actually, you know, a high degree of, of Soviet espionage. Uh, in, in the U.S. during the war. And these changes are, I mean, this, is, this actually is not even presented to the American public until 1948. But, but Truman, you know, he just witnessed a really big, I mean, Truman's uh, had a kind of a rough presidency um, after his election in 1940. Was re, well, I would say re-election, but he, he um, you know, he didn't run. He was a vice president. But he had a, you know, his approval ratings were very low. Uh, Truman was reacting to the Republican takeover of Congress because they had won both the, the you know, both chambers, the Senate and the House. So to try to get ahead of this, he announced a loyalty program in 1947. What do you mean Therefore, by a loyalty program? Like a like like if you. Find ten commies, you get the eleventh one free, or some shit. Like, is it a points card or some shit? What's a loyalty? Well, program? I don't think. Well, commies don't believe in capitalism, and that's a capitalist thought. So, I think we should put that away. <laughs> the the idea of loyalty programs that just contributing to yeah, but a communist didn't make Danny. the loyalty program. Truman did. So there you go. <laughs> the loyalty program. Find ten commies, get the eleventh free. For your breadline, <laughs> punch this. Get your tenth loaf of bread for free, like all the other ones. But then yeah. go live in a shoebox. Um, so, to uh, the uh, lo- the answer to your question, so the loyalty board was um, it was a, it was it was authorization for the FBI to investigate federal employees. That's what it was, and federal departments could hold hearings and they could fire people if there were if there was like any type of reasonable doubt 
about their loyalty to the government. So to get this uh, started, Truman's attorney general, Tom Clark, he releases a list of organizations that, um, you know, if you were members of, uh, it was the it was grounds for dismissal. It was called the Attorney General's List of Subversive Organizations. And I pulled this from the National Archives, and I'll just read it. It, uh, it originated with President Truman's Executive Order 9835 of March 21st, 1947, which required that all federal civil service employees be screened for loyalty. The order specified that one criteria to be used in determining that that reasonable grounds exist for belief that the person involved is disloyal would be finding of membership. An affiliation with a sympathetic association with any organization determined by the attorney general to be totalitarian, fascist, communist, or subversive, or advocating or approving the forceful denial of constitutional rights to other persons or seeking to alter the form of government of the United States by unconstitutional means. That's what it was. It was to root out people who were political crazies, really, you know, okay. to find out if there was any communist or fascist or um, anarchist types, anyone who wanted to, uh, who sought change in the government by outside of the constitutional process to do that. That's mm-hmm. basically what it was. And you know, I can tell you right now, there's a lot of people who kind of wish that right now. I don't know how many people live in the, work in the government who feel that way, but it's it's definitely, I feel like it's more common than it was at, at the very least 10 years ago. Well, it's, it's um, funny It's funny to me because it seems pretty unconstitutional to, you know, um, yeah, First Amendment, you know, you could be a part of whatever political party or group you fucking want to. We're supposed to be allowed that. That seems pretty unconstitutional that we're, that... You know, Truman, uh, uh, in this executive order, proposed that we could go ahead and screen everyone for loyalty and, and you know, dismiss them if they were found to be disloyal. But that's a different conversation that we can talk about maybe a little bit later in the show. But, you know, out of curiosity, like, how many people, like, end up getting, like, reviewed by this loyalty program? How many punch cards did they get? <laughs> Basically, it was millions of people. It was like five, I think it was around five million people, um, in the five million government employees who existed, and um, I think it resulted in you know several hundred who were dismissed, and then you know thousands were resigned due to this. In, in addition to the loyalty program, congressional committees were investigating communist influence over American culture. The most notable one being the House uh, the, uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee. And this committee would investigate, you know, it's kind of funny because this committee would investigate the normal places one would expect to find leftists. And where do you think those are? Well, uh, probably like labor unions and like colleges and shit, right? Yeah, I'm right about that, right? <laughs> yeah, you're gonna find them. You're gonna find leftists in three places: They're labor unions, colleges, and Hollywood. Yeah, the Hollywood, entertainment that's industry. The one I forgot. That's yeah. where you. That's where you're gonna find them. Um, <laughs> in the university system, the labor market, and the entertainment, um, which is which is funny. 
but yeah, that's mainly what they investigated. Like those three, those three pillars there. That's where they thought they'd find the fifth, the fifth column in the U S but the place that they focused the most on was Hollywood. That's where you actually kind of hear the most stories. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so ingrained in the American conscious because mm-hmm. they fucked with the entertainment industry and then the entertainment industry got, gets back on this movement like in the future with like so many different movies that derail it or look down on it. Have you ever seen the movie The Majestic with yeah. Jim Carrey? Yeah. Okay. So the, the, the basic premise of this film is that Jim Carrey is a writer who goes to an anti-war rally when he's in college and he is he ends up blacklisted and um but what happens is he ends up in a car accident and he loses his memory and then he pretends like he's somebody else or he thinks he's somebody else for like a year or so and then he finally comes back to his memory and he's like oh i'm actually a hollywood writer and i was blacklisted and now i'm going to take this to washington because even if I was a communist, I had the right to be a communist. Right. And it, that kind of film. But it's, it's actually a pretty good movie. I, I enjoyed it. But what it's, what's it, um, what it's based on is the Waldorf Declaration. And movie studios committed to blacklisting anyone who, who would refuse to testify before Congress. Because when, um, when uh, these committees would go after Hollywood... A lot of the, you know, there were directors, I think it was the Hollywood 10, it was called. Um, these get, you know, they would refuse to testify. They just, they plead the fifth. So anyone who pled the fifth and refused to testify, they would end up blacklisted by Hollywood studios. Mm-hmm. So they were, you know, they were screwed. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it, that's where it comes from. But I guess in the mind of the state, if you're going after somebody, that's pro- those are probably the three, really the like three pillars where you would want to kind of curtail. Because I mean, those are three places where if they're infiltrated by your enemy, right? That's a bad place. Those are some those are some powerful institutions outside of the state. You know what I'm saying? Like yep. the media, the labor unions, as well as colleges, as university systems. They both greatly impact society in many ways sure so it's no surprise that they were focusing on that instead of like you know corporations right you're not mm-hmm. going to find as many leftists and working for well um we'll get there we'll get there <laughs> you'll, you'll find them but most people who are working in like the the corporate structure you know they don't have time to be you know they're they're just they're focused on career growth climbing up the ladder getting raises and stuff you know it, it's just not something that is just thought about that's that's probably that's probably mostly true but but at the same time though you know de- demagoguery and when we get to the part about um about actually you know uh joe mccarthy uh and the impacts that he had i think you know we start to see this move beyond our you know the, the the common places where you would expect to find communists, right? So, not just the government, not just labor unions or colleges or or the media. It it expands and permeates through basically every you know uh, every industry, every sector, everywhere. Uh, we can talk about that in a second. 
So like, yeah, we're talking about uh, HUAC, the uh, House Un-American um, Activities Committee, and 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 I know that uh, you know they they held a lot of different um, of these meetings on on foreign espionage, and and they actually got a couple people. Uh, they they convicted them uh, of spying for the Soviet Union. We actually had uh, in our one of our older episodes on this particular case. Um, we, we talked about this as well, but um, one of them was uh, Alger Hiss, um, who was uh, who was actually not caught for spying, but but he got convicted of perjury in that particular case. But I guess it was pretty ex- you know expected that he was among the at the very least Soviet sympathizers, let's call them. But there there were other a bunch of other people. There's Whitaker Chambers, uh, Harry Gold, David Greenglass, and. Uh, uh, Ethel Rosenberg, um, who was murdered, uh, <laughs> she was sentenced to death. Actually, um, and these were all bona fide Soviet spies, like the, right. you know, you know, proven without any kind of reasonable doubt that these guys were actually working for the Soviet Union, or that, g- right. guys and girls were working for the Soviet Union. And there was a lot. There, there was actually a lot of people who were working for the Soviet Union. Like it, it, it was. There was like actual national security concerns, given that the Soviet nuclear program was a direct. It came from Soviet espionage That's in right. America. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense given the atmosphere, right? If it's one thing to be a spy, it's another thing to be a spy right after you know your the country you're spying for gains access to an atomic bomb as a result of said spying, you know, like the, the gravity of like what to do about espionage is, is a little bit higher. I mean, like all governments, all institutions like this have to deal with espionage and they do, they do so regularly and, you know, not the shit on the United States, but like we definitely fucking spy. I mean, like, like John Bolton, recently was uh, on the news talking about how he was planning a coup, you know, and that was all his, uh, his idea, you know? Wait, wait, wait. So just, just to uh, interject on that, just to interject on that. So he said he planned a coup, but Mm -hmm. I feel like he's too dumb to plan a coup. (laughs) Well, he might be too dumb to plan a coup. I don't think he planned any successful coups. Of course not. He's, he's too dumb (laughs) to plan, to actually like execute a coup, but I don't think he's, I don't think it's beyond him to try. <laughs> I think Victoria Newland is is like a more a sm- probably smarter than John Bolton. Oh and yeah, better but, at pulling coups off. Sure, um, but I think he fancies himself like an old Kermit Roosevelt. It's like oh, <laughs> yeah. like Kermit Roosevelt. I mean, uh, love him or hate what happened in 1953 in Iran. It was pretty impressive in terms of what he was able to pull off. Um, with like very little support um, right. in, but, in but Iran I guess, as far as like organizing that. I guess what my point is, right, D- despite John Bolton being a total dunce uh, and not being able to pull off coups, the, the fact remains <laughs> that pretty much every government with any capacity to spy is going to spy, and therefore every government is subject to being spied upon, right? That's not... It's nothing outside of the like normal operating procedure of governments, but it it gets a it gets particularly spicy in this time period because 
the the Soviets stole the atom bomb, right? Like they, this this created the the conditions by which we could have a cold war. This created the conditions by which we now across the world have mutually assured destruction, right? This is this is the reason why we're all, you know, staying up at night, you know, wondering if someone's going to push the button, right? And and this is why you know the 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 situation in Ukraine, you know, with Russia is so is particularly spicy because we think it could cause a globe like a thermonuclear war. This is why we're so concerned about Taiwan, right? And 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 whether or not the United States will back them up because China and the United States both have nuclear bombs. This is why Bibi has said for 30 years that Iran is 6 weeks away from making a bomb because of this shit, right? So this is this is my point. My point is that it makes sense from a from a strategic standpoint that if if you're in this time period and you know Russia's spying on you and you know they successfully got a huge win from said spying program, you're going to go after spy, you're going to go after Soviet spies. It makes sense. I'm not going to say that it's right or that the methods that they used to to root out you know, communism or, or far leftism in the United States made any sense, but I am going to say that it, it's clear why that was the case. Well, and it wasn't just the atom bomb. Obviously that's that's the biggest thing is that, you know, that's, that is like a a very legitimate national security disaster. Really? I mean, you could say the Soviets would eventually figure it out. I mean, the Germans could have, the Germans probably would have could have figured it out but some they maybe would have figured it out figured it out down the line once that technology's out it's um only a matter of time before somebody else figures it's it only out. yeah it's only a matter of time until someone someone gets it but still you know as as an american uh, i mean still i i mean i is anti-war as i am and you know i would prefer no if i had a preference of like who had nuclear bombs um, it would be nobody, but if the preference was just the United States having them, I probably would take that than the That's other the option. Yeah. Mutu- mutually compared, uh, mutually assured destruction, because right. it's a pretty scary thought. Um, but there were other geopolitical disasters. So the the two major ones that went along with this period are is the fall of Eastern Europe after World War II. So Stalin got his buffer, really. And the narrative that was coming out of the the Republican Party was that, oh, you this was you really screwed the pooch on this one. You uh, capitulated to communism and now there's a disaster in the East. Your administration was hoodwinked by Stalin. You didn't need to give him this big buffer. We lost the free world and blah 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 blah. So that was a that I mean that was I mean that's true to some degree, and then there's the other big disaster which is China. Uh, Chiang Kai Shek lost mm-hmm. the Chinese Civil War to Mao Zedong, and that was after pumping millions of dollars into the Chinese nationalist. It's it's kind of funny because Chiang Kai Shek was kind of like the old was the the Zelensky of that era. Um, <laughs> I where guess everyone, you could say that, just, couldn't you? Yeah, he was he was very pre, he was. Well, there was actually kind of a weird period because there, because there, during World War II, 
there was a lot of positive press for Mao as well. And then it started to change after after World War II ended. The press was more positive towards Chiang Kai-shek. But he was accused of losing China. I mean, that was like one of the big questions you can find in like every newspaper from the, in the 1940s is who lost China? Who lost China? And I have a feeling it's going to be the same thing with Ukraine. It's going to be who lost Ukraine? Um, that, that's going to be like a, a another headline. But it's um, Truman was blamed for for losing China, and then along with with the the war in Korea as well, because right. it wasn't just China; it was it was was Korea. Now, um, I mean, it, at this point, like we're we're like. I don't know how we're going to edit this, so we're probably more than 40 minutes in. And, you know, we're, we haven't even really talked about McCarthy. So, like, maybe we can shift a little bit and talk a little bit about specifically McCarthy and, like, how he comes into the picture and, like, what impact he has on all of this. Yeah. And, and I wanted to just touch on, like, just the the events that lead that that leads to Joe McCarthy because those are the events that are not as, as discussed and um, I think some of the, one of the key things to note about him is, is Joseph McCarthy was a centrist Republican out of out of Wisconsin. He was not a member of the old right, the old vanguard right that I was talking about. Where you he's know, actually originally liberals. a Democrat, actually. <laughs> yeah, he switched parties. But but what's interesting about this is that not to derail off Joe McCarthy again is that guys like John T. Flynn and even Murray Rothbard and you know, Murray Rothbard is like libertarian Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually supported Joe McCarthy in the hearings. And the reason why they supported him was not necessarily because of like the crusade against communism on the ideological grounds. It was more so because he was like, yes, finally, someone's going after our enemies. So that's why yeah. they liked him. They're like, Again, this guy's going after our enemies. We're not going to complain. We're going to support it. Uh, because they've been that, at this point, because at this point, these a lot of these old people, uh, these members of the, um, you know, the, what what you would call or what I would call the old right, they've been they were marginalized out of you know a lot of different institutions. So they were like they saw this as a vehicle for re- revenge. Um, but it, it's it's a whole other tangent that maybe we can touch on another episode. So. McCarthy mainly uses this issue, like about like a lot of other Republicans at the time, as a real in a reelection sense. Like this was a popular talking point, so he ran on this uh, to rail against the Democrats. And the what he did is that there was there was a two year two years after these preliminary investigations um, that had been conducted by the Truman administration. Joe McCarthy, he raises the question of whether communists were still being employed in sensitive government positions. And this was during a speech in Wheeling, West Virginia. And basically, he was saying that the preliminary investigations were left incomplete because he had a list of several dozen State Department employees who were card-carrying communists. 205, he actually said. He said that there, he had a list of 205. And I, I do want to quote him real quick. And, and I also want to underscore this by saying that it was recorded. And then 
evidently there was like a mix up where the person who recorded it accidentally deleted the recording. So we don't actually have direct quotes. This quote is coming from reporters who are on scene um, who wrote down what he said. So take this with a grain of salt, but I do want to underscore like the type of tone that he was using. Cause I think this is important for you know, arguments I'm going to make in the, in, in, in the later half. And he says, today we are engaged in a final all out battle between communistic atheism and Christianity. The modern champions of communism have selected this as the time. And ladies and gentlemen, the chips are down. They are truly down. I just want to, I just wanted to highlight, like, it's, it's one thing to say that, okay, he went to this, you know, it, it was actually like a women's Republican, you know, uh, um, group that you just random place in Wheeling, West Virginia, you know, it's some inconsequential speech that ends up being crazily consequential when it gets picked up by the Associated Press. But the point is that it's less about the fact that he was raising the question like, hey, are there still commies in the government? That wasn't it. This is where that demagoguery comes in, right? He didn't have evidence to suggest that there were still 205, as he says, uh, communists in, in positions of power in the government. He just wanted to play to the pre-existing um, prejudices and, and, and stereotypes that were already present in the wake of what already happened, right? We, they already concluded, I think it was like what, like you said, two years later, they already concluded their loyalty program issue. And now he wants to bring it up again because this was his stick to beat the Democrats with. This was his this was his talking point. Well, yeah, and, and his big thing was that he was saying that the State Department was was uh, they had intentionally overlooked the the um, you know Communist Party membership and and you know the, the I mean that was indeed I mean there were that was actually true to some degree there were communists in the State Department and. There were what, and they had those investigations, and people were convicted, and some people were even sentenced to death. Yeah, the, the claims that he was making is that the, the, and I think that other historians actually have come to the same conclusion is that the Truman administration they they had actually um, had found out that they were communists, and they were embarrassed by how many communists had actually been had actually. Uh, entered into the state department who, who were in, in in the government so they actually kind of kept some of that under wraps but let, let's 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 uh hit that later now for i agree that a lot of this was was just you know he was running on this as as a political issue um but what what happens after this is that there was a special subcommittee that was created, and it was chaired by a Democrat uh, named Millard Tidings. And the the committee really just becomes a total like partisan shit show. And it was just like arguing over semantics and numbers. I mean, the thing about McCarthy is that the numbers, like you had said, it, it keeps on the, the the list of communists that he had keeps on changing. Like the right. numbers never really consistent. And, and this and, was actually recorded because it was a committee uh, in, in Congress, and and 
at this juncture, now he's saying 57, right? And yeah, there was a bit of, you know, arguing over semantics and the number of people that McCarthy had on a list. But again, I don't think it was necessarily wrong to call him out on this because, you know, what he was arguing was that communism, communists are subverting the federal government as we speak. This is, he was making the claim that the, that the, Prime, the preliminary investigations that were carried out through that loyalty program were incomplete or that they were uh, 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 swept under the rug and that, that there were still so many communism communists in, in the State Department. And so if you're going to make that kind of claim, you gotta, you got to show your work, man. You got you to, gotta, proof is in the pudding, you know, like you got to put up or shut up. And he, McCarthy was super loose on, on facts numbers right and yeah so they're gonna pin him down on it and part of that is a a partisan issue right mccarthy was running around the country gaining popularity among the right uh you know during a a a critical um during a critical election season you know and and was trying to make the case that the democrats were running the country into the ground and sure there's going to be a politically motivated you know uh uh clap back from the Democrats, but like I think it's fair. It's absolutely fair. If you're gonna if you're gonna make a wild accusation, you better produce the the evidence to support it. Well, well, here's the thing that kind of I don't I'm not gonna say vindicates McCarthy, but at least it's um, I mean Ann Coulter made wrote a book about this. So there was after the Cold War ended, Boris Yeltsin he released. You know, a lot of he basically released like a lot, like all the classified information from the Soviet Union years, like all the spy information and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. um, part of in those archives, it became very clear the influence of the Comintern, like that. All that was uh, spread to light, and the Comintern had like way more influence in America than people actually thought. Like the 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 Comintern was directly financing the the Communist Party of the United States, the, the, there were known, um, the Communist Party in the United States would like actively kind of change its policies to fall in in the direction of the Soviet Union. Um, There was also as many as 600 Americans who worked directly for Soviet intelligence. So there were a lot of, communists who were who were in in the u.s who were in, not just like communist sympathies but they were actually um you know working for the soviet union and um again you know like that that's what leads to the atomic bomb so you you know you, you have to understand how that becomes like a major national security issue at the time now the you know the communist party usa they'd worked with the soviet intelligence um, and there was a handful of people named by McCarthy who had been spies, but the big problem was that McCarthy was incorrect, basically about all the details. So um, that's what leads to this entire this this huge mess, and and really just leads to you know whoever didn't go along with the most right wing narrative about um, about communism in the U.S. was accused of you know being a traitor essentially. 
you can even say that McCarthyism wasn't even really that much about espionage because the people that he was actually going after after weren't spies. They were just members of the Communist Party. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Right, and I, I was actually gonna gonna say that too. I think that that's McCarthy's wild ideas about Soviets infiltrating you know, the United States government were from from his understanding, wild ideas. Happened to be right about some of it, but as you pointed out, he was wrong about pretty much all the details about it. He made a he made a guess at something that was that ended up being true, but he he wasn't like you said, it, it wasn't really about spies. It was it was a war against the ideology of communism. Yeah. I mean his targets were people in the US government in the nineteen 19- who in the 1930s and 1940s had signed petitions or joined committees expressing, you know, support for the Soviet Union or communism. Right. Now, um, you know, he, his uh, rhetoric and, and basically his style, it, it definitely leads to his, his downfall. He was acting in, in a very outrageous manner. And what he did, I mean, he was an alcoholic. He died two years after this all this whole thing was over. I think he died in '57, mm-hmm. and he started to turn against. Well, he made a mistake because he started to turn against the military, and then he started to turn against the new wave of like foreign policy decision makers that were working with Eisenhower. So um, George Marshall. Uh, Dean Ackeson, um, he ba- he blamed them for losing China and Korea. He started. He also another outrageous thing that he did was that he he tried to link uh, Adlai Stevenson, who was the, the Democratic nominee for president, who who ran against Eisenhower both times. Um, he tried to link him to Alger Hiss, mm-hmm. which was just a weird thing. And then you know he went after um, he went after Voice of America, so that that that's uh, the State Department's overseas broadcasting agency at the time. Um, he went after uh, uh, Fort Monmouth in in, in New Jersey um, because that that military installation it employed Julius Rosenberg, and um, 
it was after he went after the military that Republicans turned their back on him. You know, he he had said, you know, uh, you know, one of one of the generals was unfit to wear his uniform, and then he started going after an army dentist. Mm-hmm. So that's when that's when basically everyone was like, "We've had enough of you. Like this is this is over." And um, the whole thing was televised, and it got national attention. And he just came off looking like a like a, a vindictive maniac. So there was a resolution to censor McCarthy for uh, contempt of Congress, which was actually covertly supported by by Eisenhower. So the, the Republicans just had enough of that. Um, and then you know McCarthy lost control of his committee chair when the Democrats won the Senate majority in 1955, and then he he, he died basically right after all that. So. I guess he didn't live long enough to really see how uh, notorious a historical figure that he would ultimately become. Yeah, I think he died of alcoholism. Um, he like yeah. took to drinking a lot, and he had liver failure. Uh, and I think it was because he was just so utterly shamed. Uh, you know, afterwards, because towards the end of the you know these hearings, it became pretty clear that McCarthy was just full of shit. You know. And, you know, it's, it's not surprising because if you look at his, you know, his, his background, he, he's, he had, he didn't have like a, like an ethical or like an ideological compass, you know, he he was kind of a, just an annoying person (laughs) in this. And, And it wasn't until he started getting caught in his bullshit that people started catching on to this, this, you know, issue. I mean, like he, if you look at his political career, he started off. You know, he was in the military still when he first ran for Senate and lost, which was again is against the rules. You can't do that. And then he was a judge uh, when he ran for Senate again, which is against the rules again, right? But he still got it, and he still went in. And then you know he was kind of a a, a bit like a a tool for business interests. Like apparently he accepted uh, a loan from Pepsi uh, to you know, with, in exchange for like working to end sugar rationing that was happening. Apparently he paid this back, but like he, he definitely took the bribe. Uh, he also got money from like some construction company, um, to oppose, uh, funding for, uh, federal public housing, uh, which funny enough, he ended up voting for anyway. So he took the money and still voted for it. So he was just kind of like a piece of shit, you know? And, you know, when he was, you know, in this, specific his specific committee and i um, i'm drawing a blank on the name if you remember let me know but the the committee that he was involved in that he uh, uh ran and chaired for a while this was his show like representatives just stopped going to those chamber meetings because they couldn't even get a word in edgewise or talk at all he dominated it entirely this became his like personal bully pulpit and you know he had pretty sweeping power to subpoena anyone he liked, right? Which is why, you know, maybe uh, some of the folks that you were saying supported him, but not from an ideological perspective because they were, he was going after their political enemies. He, he had free reign to, to, to basically subpoena anyone he thought were, you know, uh, uh, communist sympathizers or, or, or unloyal to the United States. And I think some of the estimates is like he called well over 500 people in in that one year and a half that he was running the show 
and he had no oversight. Like nobody was checking him. The, the crazy part about this is that out of all the people that he, that he end up subpoenaing and bringing to these things, they didn't catch anyone. He didn't catch any, they didn't convict a single person. You know, like you said, he was totally wrong about all the details. They could not convict a single person out of this witch hunt that he made. And, you know, we're talking about he, whether directly or indirectly, you know, forced government agencies to, to, you know, either not appoint people or fire people that he was smearing just because he smeared them. You know, he, he didn't prove any of this. There was many, many people whose careers and, and whose, whose good names were smeared and, and their lives were ruined from it. And because he's coming from a, an, an official government position, you know, like you could, you couldn't get away in, in, in the court of libel, uh, saying some of the shit that he was saying and making the allegations that he was making and bullying people the way that he was. You couldn't do that as a private citizen, but he was using that, that position of power that he had to his own advantage, you know, and to the advantage of his, of, of the people who supported him. He, I mean, like calling him a conspiracy theorist was, is like not even enough. Like this guy was a conspiracy monger, you know, he, and, and furthermore, he was kind of like this, like one trick pony. Like this was his talking point. And he would hammer on this over and over and over again. And towards the end of these, this year and a half, and by the way, super important that, you know, many of these, uh, if not all of them were televised and a lot of people were tuning into it because it was kind of juicy. After a while, he starts, you know, losing the public faith because he didn't catch anybody. He's not catching anybody. It's like crying wolf over and over again. It's, it's pretty similar to, you know, um, and, and I'm going to catch flack for saying this from the left here, but it's pretty similar to like Democrats trying to pin Trump with anything, right? It gets old. And it, and it becomes clear that it's no longer based on any justifiable facts. It's, it's purely from a political or ideological motivation. And I think, and this is the part that I'm, that I'm having some trouble in formulating an opinion on, I think while it's true that, you know, it's kind of like the, the, the old saying, a broken clock is, is right twice a day, right? Um, he was making these wild allegations and, and some of it ended up being true. And, and, you know, with those leaked cables, you know, from the Soviet Union after the Soviet Union fell, you know, it, it kind of, again, I, I want to, don't want to use the same word that you did, but I don't want to say he vindicated him, but it, it kind of made it seem like, oh, well, maybe he had a point, the point, is, but I don't really think that's not even fair to say, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't about spies. It was about this war on on an ideology, right? It was on a, it was it was this this concerted effort to subvert people's right to expression, particularly political expression, you know. Um, but at the same time, yeah, there there are implications here, right? So, like we talk about the atomic bomb, and and this is the thing that gets me really annoyed by when when we talk about or at least proponents of, of McCarthy having a point, you know, like I hear a lot of people in particular, unfortunately on the right that say, well, you know, McCarthy was right. You know, there was, there were spies and, and they got the atomic bomb. I mean, 
the Soviets got tested their first atomic bomb in 1949. It was well before McCarthy started talking shit about this. We had tried, you know, people like the, the, the Rosenbergs well before he was grandstanding on stage. You know, so he was, he was using people like Alger Hiss, right? That, that the, the, the guy who got caught <clears throat> perjuring himself, who was a, basically a card-carrying Soviet, um, he was already convicted. And, he, and, and, and this guy, McCarthy, is just using him as, as an example. It's like, dude, we already know about him. We already got him. Like, who else do you have? He was just using this as a convenient truth to, to peddle his, his political ideations. And, and I think what's interesting about this is that, and, and maybe this is a good time for us to have a little chat about it, is that, you know, you talked in, in, the, in the early part of the, the show about how, you know, Democrats are, are calling everybody, you know, Putin apologists when they, when they disagree and, and how there's kind of like an ideological witch hunt going on. And, and to some extent, I kind of agree. Um, the same extent, you know, but applying this, this like muddiness of, of McCarthyism, I wonder to what extent, you know, the Democrats might be right, <laughs> you know? Like maybe there are legitimately, you know, some of these some of these uh, nefarious people that are in our government that are subverting our our government in one way or the other. Maybe I don't know. Only time would tell. Well, I'll tell you know? I'll tell you I'll tell you something. If if they're subvert if there's nefarious people subverting our government, it's not on behalf of Vladimir Putin. <laughs> no, I I agree. Like, I agree. It's, it's, that, that's <laughs> I mean maybe I mean maybe there is. I mean there's plenty of people who hate the government. I mean I right. hate the government, so right. it's like not. <laughs> hey, yeah, careful what you say, man. You there's going to be people who try to subvert everything that any political structure does. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. um, every political institution immediately the day it has power, it has enemies. You know, it has opposition to it. So of course, there's you know people who are going to oppose it. I don't think that it's you know people are are anyone in government is working for or Russia. Like I don't think there's a, there's not a single person probably in the U.S. government who has legitimate sympathies with Russia or Eurasianism or Russian nationalism because it's Russian nationalism. It's not like a global. It's not something international like like communism is. And um, what what I find interesting and here's. And, one part of the reasons why I wanted to do this show and, and and look into this topic a little bit more is because I'm I'm very curious about and and I haven't I don't know the answer to this question and I'm trying to figure it out is when did like why aren't there there's no communist movement there's no socialist movement in the United States pretty mm-hmm. much what's like whatsoever at least people who are communists are like well there's a communist party. There's not the U.S. has there's never been a socialist party or a communist party mm-hmm. uh, with any type of power in the U.S. and every European country has had a socialist party or a communist mm-hmm. party in positions of power. I mean, almost all of Europe went communist after World War II. So it's it's interesting to look at why. There hasn't been any social, like widespread socialist movement. Is it because labor movements have been subverted by, you know, corporatism or liberalism or or whatever, or were were these 
uh, effective means to suppress communists, communism as a movement. Like, were these years, the, the early Cold War years, the intense, because not, I'm just kind of throwing everything into one, like the intense uh, persecution of communists in 19, you know, from 1945 to really 1955, mm-hmm. um, did that, did that completely eliminate the, the, uh, the movement from, from existence? Because, you know, the, the federal government under Truman was already going, like, like you said, you know, they were already going after, uh, they had been going after communists as early as 1940 before right. that in 19 in and after the Bolshevik revolution, they had been going after communists. So, were these um, effective measures in eliminating uh, left-wing movements out of out of the U.S.? And I'm just interested, and I'm not coming from this as like in any type of ideological view. I'm just legitimately interested why mm-hmm. there hasn't what why uh, you the United States is different in that regards. Like when did when did this happen? Like when did these I mean, mechanisms? I, I, I don't know the answer either, right? But, you know, based on the research that we've been doing, I can, I'm starting to formulate an opinion, and this is where I'm having a little bit of trouble myself, but the opinion that I'm formulating is that I think this period of McCarthyism is the direct reason why we don't see real left-wing politics in the United States. I mentioned before that, you know, McCarthyism was more a fight, not not a fight against spies, but a fight against an ideology, right? I gave you that quote earlier that McCarthy said that you know the the anti, uh, uh, rather the the atheist communists are are preparing for final battle, you know, and they're setting the stage, and you know th- this was the type of rhetoric that he was using. You know, engaging in a final all-out battle against communistic atheism versus Christianity, right? I think what what McCarthy did through his demagoguery was to promote the idea of anything leftist is anti-American, and this idea permeated through more than just the the federal government. It permeated through more than just those like top three places that we were discussing, like Hollywood and, and labor unions and, and uh, what was the third one? Lose my mind here. Uh, universities. Colleges. Right. right. It, it permeated beyond that because what, ac- what actually ended up happening is a lot of businesses, corporate businesses and small businesses, started adopting the same practices, mirroring and echoing the same practices that were happening under the under the federal government and, you know, largely to the three industries that we described. Now, back then, there weren't like anti-discrimination laws uh, in the workplace. You you could fire someone because they were a communist. That was a thing that you could do. Now, that's not the case now. You can't just do that. You can't fire someone based on their, on their political ideology. But the damage had already been done. It became very, very dangerous for the common American to hold any left-wing ideology. And it, the, the threat of losing your livelihood and losing your job, or even in certain extreme cases, going to jail for espionage, right? It's something that I think the American public took for, you know, uh, 
took for granted. You know, it's it's it wasn't. I'm not saying that I like I'm I'm fairly left leaning, but I'm certainly not a communist, and I don't necessarily uh, subscribe to communist viewpoints. But it, it seems you've made peace really... with business. Sorry, you've made peace with business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it it just seems really dangerous, right? Like I can imagine. Like imagine if here's a really good example. We can talk about this together. I was reading, um, I was reading in, uh, uh, some articles today, uh, came out from Newsweek, but I also picked it up on, uh, on some other news feeds as well, that the Democrats today are interested in doing a probe of the military and the police against uh, neo-Nazism and white supremacy. And it was set to a vote, I believe this night, it was literally today, and it was set to a vote and, and it was passed... 218 to 208. And what's interesting about this is that not a single Republican voted for it. And a lot of Republicans are calling it Orwellian. Uh, They're saying that it is a witch hunt or even McCarthyist, right? And, you know, what's what's the deal here is, you know, I try to be as diplomatic as as I can about this because this is a spicy topic. I think we agree that Nazis are bad, right? So let's just take Nazism for what it is, right? Nazis are bad. Nobody likes Nazis. And we can even extend that to white supremacy. Nobody really likes white supremacists. They're they're all fools. But I think there is a inherent fear among the right wing, even the basic rights and your center rights, that this extends beyond just looking for Nazis. Yeah, I think that's I think you're exactly correct. I think that's right. why they opposed it. And that's why I would honestly I would I would oppose that as well. Because right. you never because Nazism in the US it, there's like a large spectrum of like what how people use words. You know, the English language is weird like that, you know. Right. We we fail victim to this as well, you know. Like mm-hmm. I'll use the word liberal in three right. different or like five different meanings. Like sometimes I'll say yeah, like a liberal, as in like just like a liberal country, like the United States or the UK, like a liberal capitalist country, um, or like a liberal, as in like you know someone from the Enlightenment. Sometimes I'll use liberal as in as a pejorative, like fucking liberal, Jesus right. Christ, fucking liberal. So people have different meanings for words. Like sometimes I'll use right winger in like. A context of just like, oh yeah, he's on the right wing. Um, but then sometimes I'm like, fuck, like crazy right winger. Like sometimes right I'll winger, even right? use right winger to describe like real national, like very hardcore nationalism, which is different than you know just someone who watches Fox News every once in a while. Um, so you know we used to use language in different ways, and Nazi unfortunately has been used like that which is mm-hmm. not good because there's like a very specific term for it's, it's a word that describes a very National specific socials, type of right. gen, genocidal evil ideal and right. um mm-hmm. and you know people call people you know like the soup nazi for example yeah exactly, you know, exactly. seinfeld the mm-hmm. soup nazi like a nazi mm-hmm. can mean an anal at this point like being a real nazi with the soup and um so i, I think that term in general has it, it 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 can cover a broad set, and I think conservatives are worried that this will be used to, you know, not not root out like white nationalists or or actual like neo Nazis in the police or military. And believe me, man, I would 
I am like 100% down for hearings and investigations on on police brutality, mm-hmm. 100%. Like there's the police abuse abuses all, all the time that you know haven't been noticed, haven't been uh, brought up in the media in the past two years mm-hmm. since George Floyd that are just completely outrageous and crazy. Like this outrageous police brutality that needs oversight and and, and, and desperately needs oversight, honestly, and mm-hmm. uh, it needs investigation. Coming and investing the police from a political with a politically loaded term like Nazism is going to just cause the rally of impact and like, oh, you're going after our boys for your left wing, smearing them as Nazis. How dare you? So that is like the wrong approach. If you if you care about like police oversight, in my opinion, is to is to go through with an investigation like that. Well, I mean, McCarthy's um, downfall and, and, was when he started gunning for the military, right? So it seems like we're starting with gunning for the military on this on this Democratic yeah. side. But and I'm referring to the police in in, in this in this case. Um, but like, is there really a Nazism part? Like, let's just yes. use the real term: I, you know, I, national socialism. Is there really a Nazi problem in the United States? Like, how many Nazis in the United States are there? Well, I mean, I think, I, look. I think it. Try and find a way to to say this without being totally biased here. There is a Nazi problem. To what extent that Nazi problem permeates is, I think, unknown at this moment. The reason why I say that is because, and and these are some of the um, some of the events that uh, that are cited in this particular bill. You know, they they highlight. As an example, in 2017, there was that neo-Nazi in the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. You know, the one where he, like, drove into the crowd and killed that girl. Um, And, you know, he was, is a self-proclaimed neo-Nazi, right? Not not like a, um, not like we're just calling him a Nazi because he's a white guy who, you know, is on the right. He loves Hitler. It's like he's literally a Nazi, right? Uh, there was also the mass shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018. That guy, also Nazi. Um, and these are just like like civilian inst- uh, like instances of Nazism. But I think where where they're trying to figure out what they're trying to figure out, I think they're kind of going down this Truman route here, is saying, well, we see many instances, deadly ones, of Nazism pervasive in our culture. And there are, and and I'm the worst person to talk about this, but, you know, I've read reports about these types of ideologies, Nazism and white supremacy being pervasive in the police and or the military. What they're asking is to do a investigation of said thing. How pervasive is this? Right? Of course, you can make the argument that it could become a slippery slope and become a McCarthyism against the right. And, and, you know, in many ways I'd agree with you, but at the same time, do we just ignore this potential issue? Right. And I think what, what is permeating behind all of this, that's not, it's like this, the quiet part that no one's saying out loud is that we are, you know, we saw, you know, a year ago on January 6th, you know, a what appeared to be, depending on your frame of reference, an attempt to subvert democracy. 
you know, uh, and, you know, if you look at it from the left-leaning perspective, here's a group of people of which some percent of them might be Nazis, of which some percent of them are probably white supremacists, and some members, and there's documentation of this, are folks who were in the police, folks who were in the military. We know that, um, or at least there are investigations ongoing currently about uh, um, politicians and people in, in direct power who may or may not have organized or have been tacitly responsible for said subversion of democracy. Again, we're looking at this from the, from the left perspective here, right? Just being fair about what I'm saying here. If indeed we have a Nazi problem or a white supremacy problem, the question becomes, should we look into that? And if we discover that indeed we do have a Nazi problem or a, or a, um, or a white supremacy problem, and then we ask, how big is this problem? If it could relate to major events like January 6th, where there potentially could have been a subversion of democracy and overthrow of the of the election and the results of said election, I think those are pretty, that's a pretty strong, you know, um, case to make to at least look into it at the very least. But I totally understand. And trust me on this one. This is, this is the part that I'm really, really finding trouble finding a position on. I totally get where the right is coming from when they feel that it's Orwellian, that it's literally 1984, that it's, you know, that it's McCarthyism 2.0, except this time directed at the right. I get it. Why do I get it? Because I'm starting to formulate the opinion that the reason why we don't have an actual left is because of McCarthyism, because it was dangerous to be a communist or a lefty in that time. And that's why we just don't have them anymore. They, they, they went extinct. Or they, be, or they became liberals. <laughs> yeah. That's, I think that's what, that's the natural progression. They decided to make peace with business. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's a lot of what, uh, those kind of far leftists did. They made, they made, they made like the Vietnam era ones. They, they like, well, we'll just make peace with business and get jobs. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just, you know, we'll advance in the, the corporate hierarchy system and, you know, we'll be good at it because we're good planners. Um, so here's the thing. I mean, listen, I'm going to come from this. I'm not, I'm going to try to divorce myself from any type of political leaning right now and just, and let you know what I think would be a consequence of this. If, if there was a, a, uh, hearing to address Nazism in the police or military, it would cause a blowback effect of people real like it being like on the front page of every single like right-wing publication being like we're being persecuted this is a scheme for democrats to root us out of mm-hmm. uh, out of you know security institutions like the most important institutions in the country the police and the military mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. trying to purge us and eventually declare war on us Mm-hmm. And I think you can get a really nasty backlash from that, and um, it's a very it's a very slippery slope. Like I think I think that could lead to uh, just further polarization, and ultimately there'll be a type of like rally behind our our boys effect, where it's like, well, we need to support our, our you know our cops. 
our local police departments. We need to support because they're being they're being um, harassed. And then you know, eventually, if this happens, there's going to be like some idiot who is gets in trouble. Who you know maybe posted something really dumb like a couple of years ago, like on social media. Like maybe they did something like insensitive. Um, you know, maybe let's just say that they were in blackface, like the mayor, the 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 old governor of uh, Ralph Northam mm-hmm. and Justin Trudeau. They were in blackface a couple of years ago, and they get fired and removed. <laughs> yeah, Justin Trudeau and Ralph Northam. Um, did you ever see the Ralph Northam picture? Yeah, yeah, we we actually that is the most insane show. thing I've ever yeah. seen. Of just like how is this guy's political career not ruined for that? Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's it just it was out of like the Chappelle show crazy. Like I, I <laughs> yeah. thought it was like a clip from the Chappelle show. It's a joke. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, it's it's crazy. But is there going to be some guy who, who did something really dumb um, years ago, and they're going to get fired for it, mm-hmm. and then it's going to be like, you know, all over, uh, you know, Fox News and other right wing outlets, and it's going to be annoying. <laughs> from my side frankly because i I don't like culture war stuff like i try to i don't like fighting over culture war issues or arguing over culture war issues because Mm -hmm. it's just i think destructive and and um doesn't really get anywhere a lot of times like if we're coming from different aspects of like i feel like there's some things that we're just never going to agree on um, or people are just not going to agree, not going to agree on, like people are never going to agree on abortion. Like I'm just, people are not going to agree on bro versus way. Like if you're ironed into your position on, on, um, on, uh, either being pro-life or, or pro-choice, the chances are you're just not going to change your opinions. And I just don't feel like engaging in that because I feel like I can impact people's opinions on foreign policy. Like I can explain to them or, 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 give them arguments and why um, either what the U.S. is doing is going to cause a bad impact for them. And if they hear a reasonable argument, they're going to be willing to change their mind on it. Mm -hmm. With culture war stuff, like, I just... Well, the the problem with culture war stuff... It's like messing with people's identities, you know what I mean, more so? Yeah. You're messing with someone's identity when it comes to the culture war. So they have to change fundamentally who they are to change their positions on something, Mm -hmm. you know? So, well, the the thing about culture war stuff is that it's, 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 and this is on both sides. It's a lot of demagoguery, right? Again, yeah, exactly. The, 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 the definition there, it's, it's, it's playing on people's pre-existing prejudices to, to, you know, achieve a, you know, um, an outcome rather than rational or logical, you know, um, argumentation. Now I, I I hear you, man. I I'm feeling what you're like like what you're putting out there, but the the question still remains. It's like, what if what if the Democrats are wrong about all the details, but they're right, and there is a Nazi and white supremacist problem in in our government, in our police, in our military? Are like we just okay with that? Is that is that like okay? Well, now you're sounding like a Democrat, Democrat who's trying to push that legislation. I'm, I'm not. I'm just saying. Because well, what if about, we're talking about no. McCarthyism, right? And, and specifically the folks right now, today, who say, "Oh no, McCarthy was right," because later it came out that look at all these, look at all these spies that we had in the government from the Soviets. McCarthy was right. He might have been a dick, 
and he might have been gotten all the details wrong, but he was right. What if we talk about like that was in the 50s? It's now 2020. What if we talk about like 50 years from now? Some leaked cables come out that shows all of these Nazis and, and white supremacists were subverting American democracy and, and slowly turning us into a, you know, a fascist state. And, and the Democrats were right. I mean, they, they might have been wrong about all the details, but they were fucking right. You know, like this, this is what I'm trying to talk about. It's like the consequences of inaction. I, I don't want you to or I don't want folks to to uh, to throw away the consequences of inaction because of the consequences of action. This is a weird fucking needle we have to thread. Do both nothing and something at the same time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Hey, listen, um, I, I, I understand the point you're trying to make. I, I just, I don't know, maybe we're, I, I know you're kind of playing more devil's advocate yeah. right now. Yeah, and sure. you're not, this is not necessarily like you're not trying to make the case. No, it's not my but opinion. But I either. just, I'm just, um, I don't see evidence that there is widespread Nazism or white supremacism. Um, and when I say white, like white supremacy, I mean like you know people who are talking about master race, race and IQ shit, all the time, right. master race stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't see. I. It's it's so seldom to come across someone like that in America, that if you actually do come across someone like that, it's kind of shocking. I've come I've come across someone like that before. Um, you have to the same <laughs> yeah, person. We both have, and that's the only person I've ever met in my entire life who if I've ever. And I was like, holy shit, this person's fucking crazy. <laughs> this is a crazy person. Right. Well, we're both in we're both in like New York, dude. Well, not anymore. I'm in Puerto Rico. But you, you get the point. Like where we're from, we don't see that. Right. But you kind of can't know unless we start asking the questions, right? And and here's Well, I lived in I lived in Virginia. I lived in another state. I lived in Virginia and and um in my opinion, uh, race relations were way better in the suburbs of Virginia than they are in New York. Like it was more, it was more of like, it was way more integrated with blacks and whites down where my family lives than uh, where I live now in, in Brooklyn. I'm sure that's your experience. You know, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like argue against your personal lived experience. But what I can say is that there are documented cases all across this country of other people's personal lived experiences that paint a picture of white supremacy being a problem. I guess, you know, really that the root of this, this issue is whether or not you believe that the, that an inquiry into whether or not there is a uh, white supremacy or a Nazi problem in our military or police, whether or not that inquiry is done in good faith or not. I think that's the that's the issue at at cause here. If everyone believed that we were having that that everyone involved was truly looking into this in good faith, then I think more people would be on board. But the problem is that we don't trust each other in this country anymore, left and right, and everyone in the middle. Nobody trusts anyone anymore, and everyone. Well, that that's a that's a broad brush, but many people in this country don't act. In good faith. That's kind of a it's it's it sucks. It's you know like we should be able to ask the question, but 
the questions are are seldomly ever posed in good faith. Well, that's politics. Nothing is usually ever posed in in good faith. It's always uh, demagoguery, Mm -hmm. demagorgon. The Demogorgon. That's just, that's the monster from Stranger Things. Yep. Um, okay. I think we, we we're going on an hour and forty minutes. Yep. It is coming on twelve p.m. Mm-hmm. I need to get my beauty rest. Twelve a.m. I'm getting married next week. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. So man. I need to be pretty. I need to be pretty for my wedding. And uh, I think this episode is going to be released on Sunday. So. We'll see ya. We're going to try to record an episode on this Sunday to put out the following Sunday um, because Danny's going to be traveling to New York for my wedding. And um, I'll be hanging out with family that day. So um, thanks again for listening to another episode of Bro History. We really do appreciate your um, continued uh, viewership or viewership not the right word listenership continuing to listen listenership rate and review the, review the podcast that is the number one way to support our show um danny maybe you can elaborate a little bit more about the episode we have planned for 250 yep we are currently at episode 247 if you're listening to this and in three count them three episodes we're gonna go through our reviews and we've accrued quite a bit of them I've been diving through, I think I've crossed the 125 mark, and I'm categorizing them all, and we're going to talk about the funny ones, we're going to talk about the good ones, the bad ones. You know, the, the thing about this is that, you know, we can't review reviews. Like, I, we don't, Apple doesn't give us the opportunity to write something in return, so in some ways we're going to clap back. In other ways, we're going to take your, you know, advice and uh, in probably many more ways, we're just going to joke about ourselves. So <laughs> it should be a pretty fun episode. So if you want us to talk about how you feel about bro history, leave us a comment, leave us a review, write something down, try and be specific. Tell us what we got wrong. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you dislike. We're going to talk about it. Or if you want to troll us too, you can do that. Yeah. Whatever, whatever floats your boat. Um, but yeah, that would be. It's gonna be fun. And then make sure that if you if you want um, to join our uh, Patreon, you get access to our Slack community. It is a great way. We have a great community there. I love it. It is something that I'm constantly on. Um, we're constantly doing like news updates on uh, war in Ukraine and stuff. So join us there. It is fun, a fun place to be. And uh, anything else, Danny? No, man. All right. Peace, everyone. Peace.